Good morning, church. I'm Doug Gifford, one of the elders here. I do always count it a privilege to be up here behind this pulpit, this sacred desk that God has ordained to bring his word from. And I want to say again, thank you for your support to your elders. Uh, we, we, we fully feel your prayer and God's presence. And so we pray that you would continue to pray and continue to uh, just uphold us as we continue in this interim time that we have. Thank you, Tim, for all that you do. If you've been with us through this series, we are in First John. Um, we are looking at uh, the epistles of John. We are closing down, if you would, on First uh, John chapter 5. We are uh, about in the middle of the chapter, if you would. And so uh, there's nothing like expository preaching. There's nothing like exposing the scriptures to see what is in them and see what God truly has for us. They can be written um, thousands of years ago, but at the same time, they're for us today. And that's because it is the living word of God. So if you would, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. We're in 1 John chapter 5. We're in verses 6 through 12 today. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 <clears throat> says this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If you receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you. I pray that you'd move me aside. Lord, get me out of the way that your word today will speak to those. To those who need you as their savior. To those of us who have accepted you as savior. That we would continue to be sanctified as we continue to grow our faith. So Lord, I pray that your word be blessed in Jesus name. Amen. All right. In today's scripture verses, John slingshots off the last verse from last week, verse five. Pastor Dan spoke this last week of a victorious and overcoming life, being overcoming of the world. And as it was already prayed, we do live in a world that is upside down. Um, verse 5, if you'll look at that, it says this. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And 
when we, when we, so, so it's, he's slingshotting. So what he's saying in verse six is this. After verse five, he said, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, but not by water only, but by the water and the blood. So John is going to give three witnesses as we read on of the testimony, if you would, or the witness of God uh, and, and proving that Jesus is his son. In order, we'll see witness and we'll see testimony and we'll see evidence a lot here uh, in these verses. So in order to establish what John, the point that John's trying to get a point apart, getting over to is the, uh, of what God is saying. We have to understand what witness, what he means by witness. A witness is someone who can give a firsthand account of something they have seen, heard, or experienced. The very fact of them witnessing an event gives them the evidence that enables them to have a testimony by which they can speak into that event. Let me say that again. The very fact of them witnessing an event gives them the evidence that is, enables them to have a testimony which, by which they can speak into that event. If you've ever been called as a witness to something, it means that you have seen something that, uh, that would make someone believe that you have a testimony to what happened in that situation. And, and of course, the number one thing that we always uh, fall back on is either a court of law or if you've been in a witness to an accident and uh, not been a part of it. So we know that throughout the scripture, there have been witnesses proclaiming Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Since we have been studying John's epistle, let's see what he has written in his gospel. I'm just going to ask you to write these down because we're going to go fast. It's going to be like getting a drink out of a fire hydrant. And so I'm going to just go fast, okay? Jesus bears witness of himself, John 8, 14. John 8, 14 says, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. He said of himself, if I do bear witness about myself in the first of that. The Holy Spirit, we know, bears witness, John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The works Jesus did bore witness of Jesus. John 10, 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. The Old Testament scriptures bore witness of Christ. John 5, 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Oh, uh, one of the Old Testament's prophecies concerned a forerunner to the Messiah, whose ministry would resemble that of, a of the prophet Elijah. This is John the Baptist, or Jam John the Baptizer. The last of the Old Testament prophets. John 1, 29, the next day he saw, uh, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he later, a few scriptures down in verse 34, he said, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
The disciples bore witness of John, John 15, 27. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The men and women who encountered Jesus, who experienced the, the miracles that Jesus performed, bore witness. The Samaritan woman at the well said in John 4, 29, Come see a man who told me all that I have ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then in John 9, 25, the born blind said, He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing that I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Amen. And of course, the Father bears witness, John 8, 18b. The Father who sent me, bears witness about me. So in, in, in following that same thought of God bearing witness brings us to our scripture today. How does God, the Father, bear witness that Jesus as his son uh, is the son of God? He does this with three witnesses. So in verse six, look at it again with me. This is he who came by water and blood Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there is three, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop right there. First thing that we see is Jesus Christ came by water and blood. We have to determine what this means. If you were in the master's class this morning, you know what it meant because that's exactly where God led the class this morning and the master's class to go to, and uh, which was a, a truly amazing God thing. So anyway, um, so let's see what it means. Well, the great Augustine, and you've heard of him, the great uh, 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 church leader, believed it meant Christ being 100% man and 100% God, and it was symbolized when Christ was, born, was, uh, was on the cross and the Roman soldier pierced his side and water and blood came pouring out. John 19:34 reads, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with, the, with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. But this wasn't logical in proving Jesus was the son of God because crucifixion was common in those days. And it was also common to see blood and water coming from crucified men. Even the great reformers debated this, this scripture. Men like John Calvin and Martin Luther would have said that it was pointing to, two ordinate, to the two ordinances of, of the church, the Lord's Supper, the blood, and the baptism, the water. But the problem with that is that thinking is the, the baptism is an outward sign of what took place inwardly in a new believer at salvation. That's what baptism is. It's about a dramatic scene of what happened. <laughs> um, Romans, um, in Romans 6 declares that. And the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the whole ministry of Christ and especially his death according to 1 Corinthians 11. We will be experience, uh, uh, remembering with the Lord's Supper in a little while. So baptism is a dramatization of what happens when a believer accepts Christ as Savior. And the Lord's Supper communion is the 
uh, is the believer remembering what Christ has done for them, not only in his death, burial, and resurrection, but also in his willingness to come to this earth, only to one day die for sinners like you and me, a dramatization and a remembrance do not necessarily give proof that Jesus was God's son. So what John is actually pointing to is two distinct external events that signaled Christ's ministry. John is giving his listeners two bookends of, of Jesus's ministry, if you would. The event first that signaled that the start of his ministry, his baptism. And the event that would have Christ yell out, it is finished, his crucifixion. Of course, accumulating with his resurrection and ultimately his ascension. You see, the reformers in Augustine had it partially correct. The reformers thinking of baptism as, as having something to do with it, and Augustine thinking of the crucifixion. But there's another thing going on in these scriptures as we read them, and, uh, and, and, uh, and that is the fact that the Apostle John is dealing with the false prophets as well. Pastor Dan uh, uh, a few Lord's days ago, uh, he, he mentioned um, the Gnostics, Gnosticism. What was that? Well, it was just getting its foot in the door as it would grow even more in the second and third centuries. The ironic thing about Gnosticism is the meaning of it. In Greek, the meaning of Gnostic means knowledge. But to those who would practice it, it meant a secret knowledge that wasn't gifted to just anyone. The, uh, we talked about this this morning before, uh, before Sunday school. Um, one of the great fathers of uh, the constitution of this country was Thomas Jefferson. If you know his story, you know that uh, that would be an, an amazing thing. He never called himself a Gnostic, but if you've ever looked at his Bible, you would see that he has taken from several different, trans, not translations, but several different texts, and he has cut them out, and he's made his own Bible. Go, go look that up. And, and the reason he did that was because he did not believe in the miracles of Jesus Christ. And in fact, his Bible stops at the death of Christ. It stops right there. And uh, uh, so... That's a form of Nazism. Uh, one of the false beliefs that they had was that Jesus was born a regular man, just like anyone else. And at his baptism, he received the Holy Spirit, which enabled him to do the miracles that he performed. Then at his crucifixion, the Holy Spirit left him and he died a normal man. What they don't have an answer for is his resurrection mainly because of another of their false beliefs was, and that was the spiritual world and the physical world are two divided realms. They don't intertwine. The, phys the physical world, which is made up of matter, you and I were made up of matter, is evil and therefore is in opposition to the spiritual world. Knowing this, we can understand why John uses such pointed words like water, blood, and the spirit. Who is the truth? Well, let's look at the first evidence, all right? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. And again, we're going to go quick. Um, so Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Well, let's look at first, let's look at Jesus' baptism. 
First we see, and, uh, and before we get to 13 through 17, John the baptizer was Jesus' second cousin and approximately six months older than him, according to Luke 126. Remember, as we said earlier, that John the baptizer was the, old, was the Old Testament prophet. He actually was the last Old Testament prophet. And he would come, as Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Matthew 3, 2 says, he was the, vo the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and this was his message. Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer's baptism was one of repentance. It was common to be administered to a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism. And when a Jew was baptized, they were admitting that they were as Gentiles and needed restoration. So why would Jesus need to be baptized by John the baptizer? After all, he was sinless and didn't need to repent and be restored. Well, there are several reasons. Let's just look at a few. And this is not the top five uh, this is not the top five, okay? This is just a few. Jesus is identifying with sinners. After all, in three and a half years, he will die for the sins of all those who believe. He's, he's meeting the number two. He's, meeting, he's meeting the requirements of the Old Testament law that a priest be consecrated by the cleansing of water as they were effectively ordained into the ministry of the priesthood. And we all know Jesus is our high priest, as Hebrews 8 points out. He was signaling the beginning of his public ministry. We, we've spoke of that. That was the first bookend. He also created a public scene where he was able to be introduced as the Lamb of God by the prophet of God. And finally, and most importantly to the evidence John the Apostle has in mind of this event, this baptism by water is about to provide an eyewitness account and undeniable evidence from the triune God as to who Jesus is. Notice in verse 16, let's, let's read real quick, 13. Um, and, and, and he says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's a lot in that we could spend a lot of time on. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So what's the significance of this baptism versus others? Well, I think we just read it. Notice that in verse 16, after being baptized and coming straight up out of the water, he saw the Spirit of God coming to rest on him as a dove. Not a dove. There is a difference. A lot of, a lot of folks, and we won't get into that, a lot of folks believe that they're deceased loved ones come back as a dove that's not true that's not scriptural so and then those undeniable words from the father himself in verse 17 this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased 
So what we see here is the voice of God, the voice of God the Father, echoes from heaven to all present at the Jordan River, this man is my son. What a witness. What is witness number two? Well, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, real quick. John makes it clear here in, in, in uh, back in verse 6 of, of, of 1 John. I won't have you go there. I probably should have had you put, put your finger there. I hope you did. Uh, of today's text that Jesus didn't come by water alone, but Jesus also came by water and blood. So look at it again with me. We won't because we're in Matthew 27 now. But one, one author puts it this way. Nowhere in Scripture is the term blood used alone to designate the Lord's Supper. When we come and in a little bit and present ourselves uh, uh, to God in remembrance of him and what we were going to do, partake, it's not, it's not a bloody affair. Remember when I talked, uh, I think it was in, in uh, chapter 2, 1 John, we talked about the atonement. And I gave a, a really descriptive um, thing of what Christ did and how bloody the cross was and how bloody it was for the atonement. That's what we're talking about. Uh, is, so, um, so the blood that John is referring to is, of course, Christ's blood that was shed on the cross for sinners like me and you. But as I said earlier, crucifixions were common in those days. And in fact, Josephus, the first century historian, writes that more than 1,000 people were crucified that in that same region, the same year that Christ was crucified. We know from historical accounts that the Romans had already crucified more than 30,000 men in the, in, in the Palestine area, the Palestine area alone. Many of them on that hill we call Calvary. Where's the evidence that his bloody death meant anything more than anyone else's death? Well, Matthew 27 will help us out with that. We must turn to the gospel here and to, to get a clear picture of what's, uh, what, what's being said, what the, that this was not a regular crucifixion. Starting in verse 45, and we'll see this. <clears throat> now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Uh, and so we're told here, that darkness filled the whole land from the sixth hour, which is 12 noon, to the ninth hour, 3 p.m. The language here signifies a total blackout. You can imagine as torches were drawn out and the nonstop heckling that was going on stopped. An eerie blackness covered everything. Remember when three days uh, of darkness was one of the Egyptian plagues, the ninth one to be exact in Exodus 10:21 forever linking it to the Passover and the judgment of God. These three hours are clearly parallel that the judgment only, uh, on, uh, only this time, the judgment represented Jesus is uh, vicariously experiencing on our behalf the judgment of God the Father as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. There was no question. In verse 46, we see about the night, um, I'm sorry, uh, um, also in 46, later on, he, he cries out, 
I always whack that up. I'm not going to say Eli, Eli, Elam, Salabuktani. I think that's how you say it. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I do know how to say that. That is what Christ said as his fast, close to his end of his uh, life. So in verse 46, we see Jesus cry out in total abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's been abandoned by disciples, the Jewish nation and their leaders. He suffers absolutely alone, and now he is forsaken by his father. But in verse 50, he cries out in victory. You read it, I'm going to describe it. It is finished. John 19, 30 also uh, speaks of it. Luke 23, 46, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So you may feel, and, and I want to speak to you, uh, you may feel abandoned, rejected, betrayed, denied, and condemned. But know this, that his bloody death means you will never, ever be forsaken by God. Never, ever. You remember the veil that we talked about a while back in 1 John 2. The one that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Matthew 27, 51 says that it was torn from top to bottom. Some think that this veil, uh, a better description of it, was probably around 60 feet tall from ceiling to the floor and, it, and as much as six inches thick. So this wasn't a gentle tear caused by the earthquake that also took place, as you read about here, but a violent act of supernatural strength, as if God himself was saying, all may enter into my presence through the veil which is the sacrificed flesh of Jesus Christ. The veil was torn. Everyone who believe can come. Verse 52 and 53. And that's not all. The tombs were open and saints receiving glorified bodies came forward. Verse 53 says that they gave witness as they went into Jerusalem, the holy, the holy city, and appeared to many. Now, how about that? How's that for evidence? People who had died years ago showing up in your city, maybe even your front porch, for all to see what other evidence is needed. Well, there is a third. Go back to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 says this in 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. And these three agree. Some of your translations may have a little bit more words in there, especially if you have a King James or New King James Version. Uh, that was put in because of, uh, and you can go back and read this history. Double check me. Double check what I'm saying. I didn't write this in my notes. I didn't feel like it was necessary. But if you do have a translation that, said that, that, that mentions all three, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that was really added in. It's not in the oldest trans, uh, transcripts. It really uh, began um, in the 14th, 15th century. Uh, when King James 1611 came out, they decided to put it in whoever the scribe was. And there is a name. I just don't have him in my head. 
And uh, you can go back and study that. So if you have that version, that doesn't mean that the other more modern English versions are incorrect. It just means that that wasn't a part of the original trans transcript. So now that I chased that rabbit. Verses 7 and 8, John adds one more piece of evidence before moving on. The first two were external and physical they have evidence of God's testimony as, a, uh, as to Christ's authenticity. The third is an internal and invisible. So you have external and visible, internal and invisible. The very nature of the Holy Spirit of God is to tell the truth. The Spirit informs us in numerous scenes in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is to be exalted, followed, and trusted. One we've already mentioned is John 15, 26, which says, But when the Helper comes, when I will send to you my, from the Father the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. In other words, if you put these three witnesses in separate rooms and interrogate them, and interrogate them individually, they will all three come up with the same answer. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the true living God. So how does this happen? How does the Spirit of God witness within the hearts of the believers? In Romans 8, 15 and 16, Paul tells us that for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit's witness is in us as believers, and, and is our, it's, a, in our, it's our inner confidence that we belong to Christ, not a confidence that we have to work up for ourselves, but a confidence that God gives us. So the title of today's uh, message is uh, The Testimony of God is Greater, verses 9 through 12. Look at those with me again. Count the word testimony in your, in, your, in your word as we read it. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. In these verses, according to the ESV translation Bible, John uses the word testimony six times. It's from the Greek word uh, marturia. I'm probably whacking that up too, but it's marturia. And it can be translated uh, and can be translated testimony. The word means testimony or witness or record. And it's also where we get the word martyr from. Those who are martyred because of their testimony for the word of God. And that's who, who they uh, that's the where they what they were called. So. If you paraphrase verses 9 through 12, John would be saying, let the record stand. 
Let the record stand. In Jewish law, Deuteronomy, which is in Deuteronomy 19.15, God gives Moses the charge that by the record of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Of course, this is John's intent. Also in Jewish law, a witness had to be credible. A convicted thief or a murderer or a criminal of any kind could not be a trustworthy witness. This is God's testimony about his own very son. Verse 9, John is stating that if we accept man's testimony, and they did, like I said, two or three witnesses, they were credible, they would accept their witness. Then he says, how much more should they accept God's testimony? John wants, to be, uh, wants it to be seen that God put forth these three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the spirit in order to substantiate his own declaration that Jesus is the Christ. John is saying, listen, we would believe the testimony of mortal man. How can we not believe the immortal testimony of an eternal God? In closing, I want you to do me a favor. Verses 10 through 12. I want you to look at them again with me. Now I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to substitute your name where it says whoever. Okay, look at it with me. And this is how it's going to go. I wrote mine out and I did put if just so it flow a little better. But verse 10, this is the way I'm going to read it to myself. If Doug believes in the son of God, he has the testimony in himself. If Doug does not believe God, he has made God a liar. It's important to note here, though, before, now this is a side note. It's important to, to note here that if someone refuses God's own testimony regarding his son, you're calling God a liar. And that is the most blatant form of blasphemy. You're actually, you might have seen this years ago, I don't know, but uh, President Bush was standing in a, in a, um, and, and giving a speech. Someone took their shoe off and threw it at him. That meant they were calling him a liar. They were calling Bush a liar. We're actually, if we don't believe that God says who uh, his son, who, if we don't believe this testimony, we're actually taking our shoe off and throwing it in the face of God. So he goes on, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son, so what is the ultimate testimony that God has given us? Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. Verse 12, and we're finished. It reads like this, if I would substitute my name for who, whoever. If Doug has the son, he has life. But if Doug does not have the son of God, he does not have life. So in conclusion, and we'll get ready to pray, I want to ask two questions. Number one, have you believed the testimony of God that he's given towards his son? If not, today is the day. In fact, will you do that today? We'll be down here and we will um, 
we'll, we would love for you to come down, meet us down front, and, uh, uh, and let us show you what, how, how that you can know Christ forever. And as a matter of fact, if you would, I'm not going to get into, but I'm going to read in verse 13. This is why he writes these things. John writes these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why we're doing this. That's why John wrote the epistle. And the second question is, if you have accepted Christ, but you're kind of on the fringes, you're kind of not really hooked up, you know, hooked in, uh, will, you, will you do that? Will you see the reality of what God is saying here and how we are to lean into him, lean into God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony, Lord. And as we even uh, experience the Lord's Supper here in a little bit, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us in that, uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to remember and help us to know, Lord, that you are, um, that, that God has, has given his testimony and, and dear Jesus, that you are God's only beloved son. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise these things in Jesus' name. Amen.